Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Surprise Jab Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ruger, surprising you with new topics every single week and jabbing you with your daily dose of UFC information. And I got a lot of UFC information coming at you today. UFC Noche, as it's being called, goes down this Saturday. It's uh, Alexa Grasso versus Valentina Shevchenko for the UFC Flyweight Women's Championship. Um, it's on Mexican Independence Day, so they're calling it hashtag UFC Noche. You know how they do like UFC Kansas, UFC Paris, UFC Singapore. It's UFC Noche, but it's just at the T-Mobile Arena in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. But we got a lot more than just that. We're going to be giving all my picks for uh, UFC Noche. I'm going to be saying that all episode. We'll also give my week two NFL predictions, who I think is going to win each game. Uh, we're going to recap Dana White's Contender Series, uh, Episode 6, which went down Tuesday. Uh, I do have a surprise topic planned. We got a little bit of UFC 5 news, and we're back with Loyal to the Belt. We got lots to cover on this beautiful Thursday in Minnesota. Uh, I think it hit 80 degrees today. You know, it's fall is right around the corner. I love fall weather, personally. I like, uh, I like the sweatshirt-shorts combo, or even just like the crewneck-shorts combo. Long sleeve shirt, shorts combo. I really think that works well with fall. Um, I, I personally like that temperature better than like scolding hot summer or winter. I think fall is a perfect in between. And, you know, my birthday is also in fall, which is coming up. I turned 21 in 16 days now. That's crazy. We got to find a, I got to find some plans to do for my birthday. Throw a rager or something. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, yeah, let's dive into what we got today. Going to start out with some new news. UFC 5, we're getting some more information about that by the day. EA Sports UFC 5, the fifth installment of the UFC game under EA uh, director developmentship, however you phrase video games. Um, yeah, so they gave us a little community roadmap of sorts about when to expect information. So in September, they gave us a first look and gameplay features. That happened on uh, September 7th. They said also coming in September is a gameplay deep dive. So expect that with, within the next uh, two weeks, I believe. Um, then in October, they're doing a presentation deep dive. So like walkouts, arena, fans, just like stuff that you see around, I'm assuming. Uh, they also have game mode deep dive in a separate video. We could talk about the game modes. Then early access to the game is on October 24th. And the worldwide launch is October 27th. Man, I'm looking forward to that. UFC 4 kind of dying out. I'm wrapping up my final times playing that game. Uh, but yeah, it was fun on it. I have an unhealthy amount of time on that game, but... Hey, better than drugs, as I always say. Game, video games are better than drugs. <laughs> that's, I don't know if that's the best saying, but, you know, it's how you justify having multiple days on a video game. I also found out that UFC 5 will no longer have pre-fight emotes. Instead, you can uh, do, like, a dance or do, like, a fist pump on the fighter select screen. I really like this feature. I thought it was dumb when they first introduced it. I thought it delayed the fighting even more, and it just... It's not necessary, personally, in my opinion. Uh, and, um... In regards to doctor stoppages, uh, the NEA developers said that matches have a 2% chance in uh, online at least, or a 1 in 50 if you want to do your odds like that. So it feels rare when it happens. Uh, I believe offline or in like just, yeah, offline in general, you can probably edit that. But I mean, I will certainly be open for doctor stoppages. That's one of the features I love. And whenever my game freezes in uh, 
UFC 4, you know, when that games just freeze on your Xbox or TV. I'll just act like a doctor stoppage happened. So there's that. UFC 5 right around the corner. Actually, you know what? I'm going to give five fighters I want in the game, in no particular order, just off the top of my head, just simply because they aren't in the new game and they're surging contenders or they're going to be. So, um, yes, uh, number one of the fighters I want to see in the game is Amir Albazi. If no one knows who Amir Albazi is, he's the number three flyweight in the world, uh, currently ranked number three in the men's division. He's currently on, gosh, an incredible win streak. I don't know if he's lost yet. In the UFC, I believe he is 5-0 and in the UFC, coming off a big fight night uh, main event win over Kaikar France. Very much the, they deserve to put more flyweights in the game, and they should start with Amir Albazi. They have hardly any other top 15 so they could definitely improve that for at least fighters they're going to add um my number two fighter i think they should add is umar nirmago medoff the cousin of khabib umar currently ranked number 11 in the men's bantamweight division he is a perfect 16 and oh undefeated in the ufc as well he's coming up the ranks they offered him to the number two ranked marab dwevashelli for a chance to fight, and Marab did not accept, or I think maybe that fight fell through, or no, Umar was supposed to fight Corey Sanhagen, and that fight fell through, so they clearly think high of Umar, definitely put him in the game. Number three is Mosafar Evov, another Russian, currently ranked number nine in the men's featherweight division. He's a perfect 17, and oh, I mean, just been an absolute beast, coming off a Good win against Diego Lopez. Also holds a win over Dan Ige. They're trying to get him against a top competitor, but no one will fight him, man. He's super good. Super good at grappling, certainly. Uh, my number four of five fighters I want in the game is Ian Machado Gary. Ian Gary, currently ranked number 11 in the men's welterweight division. The surging Irish prospect. Uh, Conor McGregor reincarnated, people are saying. He's a perfect 13-0, coming off his biggest win over Neil Magny. Uh, that was at UFC 292, so yeah, just about a month ago that went down. Man, super confident, talks a lot of trash. Uh, and he's been able to back it up so far. So let's get him in the game. I thought they would have honestly added him added him before UFC 5, but uh, clearly they've given up on UFC 4. But it is what it is. I accept it. And uh, my number 5 fighter that I want in the UFC 5 is Halton Almeida. Halton Almeida, currently ranked ninth in the men's heavyweight division. This guy is an absolute beast. Let me tell you about it. He has 14 first-round finishes of 19 victories. He has 19 finishes in total with 19 victories. He has finished every single one of his fights. Every single one. And in the UFC, I mean, he's he's already had five fights and finished all of them. The farthest he's been was into round two in one fight. This guy's a beast. He's uh, currently taking on Curtis Blades coming up uh, November 4th, or I believe November 4th, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And Curtis Blades is currently the number five heavyweight in the world. So they want to break him into the top 10 or top five, I believe, and certainly put him in the game. Yeah, those are some fighters I want. But I'm sure they've already mentioned they're adding a lot of new fighters, hopefully taking out some that haven't fought in the UFC in forever. But man, it should be entertaining. Moving into our uh, next segment, 
a classic here from the original episodes we used to post, which is a segment I call Loyal to the Belt. Loyal to the Belt. It's where we pose this question. Are you loyal to the current title holder or to the fighter that holds the belt? A perfect example we can look at right now currently is Israel Adesanya versus Sean Strickland. I mean, how many of you are still going to rock with Adesanya now that he's lost? And how many of you are going to switch to being Sean Strickland fans? And personally, it's so easy to switch. You just get caught up in a certain fighter. Sometimes a fighter you like becomes unlikable. And since Alexa Grasso defends her belt this Saturday, we're going to do her. This one's a bit uh, bit more simple. Nothing too deep to dive into. Um, Alexa Grasso beat Valentina Shevchenko, who she rematches this weekend. Um, earlier this year at UFC 285 in March, she was currently, um, I believe she was down 2-1 to one in rounds and was even losing the round that uh, she finished her in round number four before she uh, shockingly submitted her. Crazy moment. remember watching it live with my cousins. And this will be her first title defense, and it's a rematch against probably the second or third greatest mixed martial artist woman of all time. Valentina Shevchenko is an absolute beast. And, um, yeah, I mean, she was the... So Valentina Shevchenko won the belt in 2018. So Alexa Grasso is the first... UFC Women's Flyweight Champion since 2018, so it's been a while. I mean, we I think we did a segment on Valentina a while ago, maybe, but I can't recall because it's just it's been so long since we've had a Women's Flyweight Champion. Um, I would personally say that I'm loyal to the belt. I could I can honestly care less about Alexa Grasso. Um, I'm not going to spoil who I'm picking just yet for the main event, but uh, I'd say I'll ride with whoever holds the belt. It's nothing personal against Alexa Grasso. I just, I don't really hold anything specifically in the women's flyweight division. I mean, maybe I'll root for like Aaron Blanchfield or Manon Fiorat if they get title shots, but as for Alexa Grasso, you're just a casual fighter. So I I am loyal to the belt. I am loyal to the belt. That's how we'll phrase it. If you're loyal to the fighter, you're not loyal to the belt, but if you're loyal to the belt, you're loyal to the belt. Okay, that that that's how we're going to phrase it. Uh, stay, staying along the UFC terms, I mean, pretty much that is the podcast when you think about it. When it's just me, I can talk about UFC forever, but when I have guests on, I mean, a lot of them, a lot of the people I know aren't as experienced in the UFC realm as I am, so that's why we're always talking about like NFL or just life in general with the guests, but... As for here, we talk about UFC and Dana White's Contender Series. Season 7, Episode 6 went down um, last Tuesday, which would have been the 12th. It would have been September 12th, 2023 to date it that uh, Episode 6 went down. And I watched all five fights. I took notes during the fights, and we're going to go over everything. I went two for five on picks. I mean, two for three, I mean. Two correct, two three incorrect. It was not my best, but hey, it's... Kind of hard to pick these contender series fights. Let's kick it off. Um, we had Gene Matsumoto taking on Casey Tanner in the men's bantamweight division. And this was a very competitive fight. Um, good takedown defense right off the bat from Gene Matsumoto. Um, and he was firing off some nasty leg kicks against Casey Tanner. Casey, of course, training with Henry Cejudo, so he was more grappling orientated. Um, round one was very close. Could have gone either man's way. I had it going to Matsumoto. He landed more significant. Actually, they were even in significant strikes. And um, so, yeah, but I gave it to uh, Gene Matsumoto. Round two came along, and Tanner landed a takedown with a minute left in the round. The previous three minutes, nothing much had happened. 
Matsumoto then uh, got back up, um, had some good striking, and honestly, I gave it to Matsumoto just because of his striking. Even though Casey Tanner landed more significant strikes, just, I mean, Gene looked better on the feet. But if there's any round that Casey would have won, it probably would have been round two. Um, as round three came around, I mean, Tanner landed a takedown with a minute 20 left. Matsumoto striking was on point the whole round. Moto clearly won it. I had it 30-27 for Gene Matsumoto. Uh, judges had it 30-27, and 29-28. Gene Matsumoto getting the win. I predicted he would get a contract. And we'll, I'll mention later if he did. But Gene improves the 14-0. Very impressive. Uh, Casey Tanner suffering his first professional loss, falling to 6-1. and one. But Gene Matsumoto looked pretty good. I, I predicted he would get a contract. Hanging into our second fight of the evening, we had Julia Polastri taking on Patricia Alujas. Julia Polastri, her second attempt on the Contender Series, went very well. I mean... From the get-go, guys, halfway into round number one, both ladies were just swinging, swinging for the whole round. I mean, just swinging for the fences, trying to take each other's head, heads off. But by the time it was over, I mean, Dana was on his feet. He was shaking. He was, he was going crazy. And I honestly, I forgot to mention, after that first fight, Dana walked into the octagon and shook everyone's hands, um, the two fighters, Gene and Casey. So Dana was loving this event, and he was loving these two ladies on his feet, clapping for them both. But round number two comes around, and Pilastri lands a big slam takedown. Landed some huge knees to Aluhus on the ground. It was looking brutal. Um, and then at the 55-second uh, mark, 55 seconds left, that is, of round number two, Julia Pilastri submits Patricia Aluhus. Uh, Very good win for Julia. Happy for um I predicted she would get a contract. I mean, usually you can assume when a fighter gets a good finish in the first two rounds, they'll get a contract. Julia looked amazing. She improves the 12 and 3 professionally. Patricia falls to 9 and 3. Heading to our third fight of the evening, Steven wins third attempt on the contender series as he took on the savage AJ Cunningham. And man, AJ Cunningham's story um, that they told on the broadcast was just terrible. His father um, used to inject him with steroids to fight. He used to pour condiments on him and throw him outside. He used to have him fight dogs, fight his siblings. It was terrible stuff for AJ, so he really felt bad for him. But sadly, this ain't America's got talent. Sad sob stories don't win you contracts on uh, Dana White's Contender Series. Round number one, um, I thought Wynn dropped him 40 seconds in. Apparently, he had just slipped. Um, Wynn was looking so slick. This entire round, they were both bleeding pretty hard. But right towards the end, just a draw-dropping moment. People going crazy as Steven dang near ended the fight with three seconds left. Even landed a couple of shots after the bell, not intentionally. It was looking bad for AJ Cunningham. I mean, Steve hit him with a big straight, dropped him. I thought he was knocked out. He survives to round number two. And, um, yeah, Steven win, wins round two. Uh, one, I... I should say, Steven uh, won round one. We go into round two, and a jab from... Uh, the jab was just looking beautiful from Steven Wynn. I mean, the surprise jab. He was landing the jab. It's almost... It just rolls off the tongue. And, um, yeah, standing TKO for Steven Wynn um, at about the two minutes. Four minutes into round number two. A beautiful win for him. He outstruck him 103 to 69. 
Beautiful job from Stephen Wynn. I obviously projected he would get a contract. AJ Cunningham was a bloody mess. I'm pretty sure they sent him right to the hospital. He, he was not looking good. Man, good win for Stephen Wynn. I was happy for him, man. And he trained some really good guys like Ryan Spann. And uh, they were touting praise about him. His family's going crazy. Super good moment for him. Moving into our fourth fight of the evening, we had Jahanta Denise taking on Eduardo Neves. Eduardo's second shot on the Contender Series did not go well. Denise drops Neves. Um, he brought him to his knees at the two and a half mark of round number one and then hits him with this beautiful straight KO. I mean, drops Eduardo down, landed like one or two follow-ups, and that was it. Jahanta Denise is here. He's a perfect 6-0, six, oh, six KOs to his name. Whew. Obviously projecting he would get the contract. I mean, he looked very, very good. Not much not much to say. I mean, it's a heavyweight fight. It ends quick and ended in 3 minutes 15 seconds. Was loving the fights up until here. Main event, I kind of got on uh, Xbox with my friends and was kind of just watching on my phone. Which I'm glad, because this was the most boring fight of the night. Round number one, though, did start out decent. James uh, Lawntop took on Malik Lewis in the uh, men's lightweight division. This was Malik Lewis's second attempt on the Contender Series. Um, James looking a bit better, outlanding him a bit in round number one. Uh, good scrambling from both of these men. I gave Lawntop round number one. Heading into round number two, James was getting the striking going very much so. Defended two takedowns. Lewis was very hurt to the body. Lontop was just just giving it to him. I mean, it was looking pretty brutal in round number two. I'd say round two might have been a 10-8 personally in favor of James Lontop. And uh, yeah, it was not looking good for Malik heading into round number three, and it did not go well. James drops Malik twice in round number two. I'm sorry, pardon, three. Outstrikes him 62 to 12. Lands over two and a half minutes of control time. James gets the 30-26, 30-26, 30-27. Unanimous decision. But despite the performance, I honestly didn't think it was that impressive in hindsight compared to the rest of the cards. So I predicted he would not get a contract. But as Dana White came out, read off who he was uh, giving contracts to, we found out everyone. He started out by saying that this was the best night of the season so far. I completely agreed. Had me out of my seat at times. Super, super engaging. I mean, the fights were just competitive. Excellent matchmaking, I do say. And I was loving it. So we kick it off. Matsumoto, as I predicted, did get a contract. Uh, Julia Palastri got a contract, like I predicted. Stephen Wing got a contract, like I predicted. Janata Denise got a contract, like I predicted. And Dana even gave a contract to James Lontop because he was feeling generous. So I did not think he would get one, but he did. All five fighters who won got contracts. And yeah, that was Dana White's Contender Series. I mean, another Tuesday gone, 10 episodes in total. I think we're down two three episodes left maybe four so this was six we still have seven eight nine and yes we got four episodes left i mean what am i gonna do on tuesdays when i don't have ufc i, I guess doordash i guess watch kill tony uh, find a new show to binge i, I don't know I, I spend all my tuesday nights watching ufc but hey you know what i can find better things to do or can i because it's super entertaining and i do enjoy i do enjoy ufc it's always fun um, what should we talk about next? Should we do our surprise topic or should we do my week two NFL picks? 
I'm feeling I'm feeling week two NFL picks, the surprise topic, and then UFC Noche picks. I love it. I love it. So week two of the NFL is right around the corner. I mean, first fight is tomorrow. I mean, oh my gosh, tonight. It's Thursday. My Vikings play the Eagles. I'm getting my days mixed up. I'm actually going to watch the game tonight. Actually, I have plans to watch the game, and I'm all rattled. But, yeah, I'm going to go through, just give off all my picks. God, I have a good amount of upsets, honestly, but let's do it. All right. First game of week number two in the NFL, uh, the Minnesota Vikings will be visiting the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Eagles are big favorites in this one. Everyone's riding with Philly. But you're not a real fan if you don't root for your team. I'm going Minnesota Vikings by 10 points. That is right. I'm feeling ambitious. They'll probably win by three, if anything. But I like to be ambitious with my Vikings. Look, I, I think it's going to be an offensive showdown. I'm really hoping we don't get shut out. I feel like whenever the Vikings play the Eagles on primetime or even in general, we get destroyed. I mean, they, they beat us when we could have been the first team to play in a Super Bowl at home. That was heartbreaking when we lost 38-7. to That was just brutal. And last year on, um, was it Monday night? I think it was Thursday night last year, too. I can't even recall. Oh, frick. It might have been Monday, actually. Uh, we got blown out, too. But um, you know what? This ain't last year. This ain't 2018. The Minnesota Vikings are beating the Philadelphia Eagles. Moving into game number two, the Packers will be going um, down to Atlanta to take on the Falcons. And, you know, even though the Falcons picked up a lackluster um, win in week one and the Packers picked up a dominant win, I ain't picking the Packers. I hate the Packers. The Packers are my op. I will cheer for the Bears and the Lions before I cheer for the Packers. I'm fly, Hawks, fly, or Falcons. I don't know what the chant is. Go, go, Falcon, fly, Falcons. Whatever the Atlanta chant is, I'm all here for it. I'm riding with the Atlanta Falcons, baby. Right? Desmond Ritter, uh, T- Tyler Algier. We got Bijan Robinson, Drake London, uh, Kyle Pitts. Very young team. J- just listen off all those names. Very young team. But uh, got to pick some upsets. You do. And, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, it's the season of love. I feel no love from the Packers. We're sweeping them this year, too. That's right. I'm getting all fired up. You hear me? You hear the tone of voice? It's changing. All right. Let's go um, to an AFC matchup between the Colts and the Texans. Colts visiting the Texans. Anthony Richardson against C.J. Stroud. Going to be a very good matchup. I'm going with Anthony Richardson, guys. I think the Colts looked pretty good. And the Texans had a very sloppy game against the Ravens, of all people. We're going with the Indianapolis Colts. Moving on to a divisional um Foe, if you want to call the Lions a foe, the Seahawks will be um, visiting Detroit to take on the Lions. And after what I saw last week, you know, I can hate on the Packers, but I got to give it to the Lions. They picked up a big, big win over the Chiefs. I think any issues they might have had in that game, which was few, they can get over and they can get their revenge on the Seattle Seahawks, who did not perform to their highest capabilities. In week one, the Rams really took advantage of them not being prepared the offense for the Seahawks was not looking very much dominant at all. The days of the Legion of Boom on defense are long gone. We are going with the Detroit Lions. Going to be um, probably our biggest opposition in the U- NFC North for uh, my Vikings. Next up, we have the Chargers visiting the Titans. I have nothing to say. If the Titans win this game, I will be utterly shocked. Utterly shocked. The Chargers, um, I've been hearing news that Austin Eckler may have hurt himself. I think it might just be trolls online, but I don't know if that's, there's any validity to that. They have a very good offense. 
I like the Chargers. Their game against the Dolphins was amazing. Probably my, ooh, I'd probably put it as my best game of week number one. Always a shootout with the Dolphins when they play someone in the first couple weeks. But yes, I'm going with the Chargers over the Titans. I mean, Ryan Tannehill threw three picks. But um, I do need Derrick Henry to pop off in that game. Maybe rush for 200 yards and still lose. That would be nice. All right, let's get into my big upset of the week. The Raiders will be visiting the Bills, and I kid you guys not, I'm picking the Raiders. I know, I'm picking the Las Vegas Raiders to beat the Buffalo Bills. I think the Bills are still going to be shocked that they lost that game against the Jets. I think the Raiders are going to just pull off the upset. That's my big upset of week number uh, two. I always got their one upset out there. I mean, it's no fun picking all the favorites all the time. But man, Jimmy Garoppolo... Uh, link up with Jacoby, link up with Devontae, Josh Jacobs, do some magic. I'm going with the Vegas Raiders. Come on, boys, you got it. And uh, yes, next up, as just as I was uh, expecting, the Chiefs going down to Jacksonville to take on the Jaguars. This should be a very competitive matchup, but I think the Chiefs are out for revenge. I think they're pissed they lost that Lions game. Canarius Tony probably will receive much less targets, but it won't be easy for the Chiefs. The Jaguars uh, looked very good in week one. I mean, the backfield, Travis Etienne, Tank Bigsby. I mean, you got Calvin Ridley, you got Zay Jones, you got Christian Kirk. You got an amazing, you got Evan Ingram out there even. I mean, the Jaguars are a team this year, but I'm going with the Chiefs, man. I think the Chiefs own the Jaguars in my opinion, but hey, anything can happen. Next up, an always good divisional matchup between the Ravens and the Bengals. The Bengals had a terrible week one. The Ravens had a good week one, despite having a, not the best performance. I mean, J.K. Dobbins got hurt. I mean, Odell didn't really do much. Lamar didn't have an MVP-worthy performance. If anything, who who is the current MVP right now? Who who is the, who should we probably the Dallas defense? We're gonna give the Dallas defense the MVP, but um, we'll we'll see once the season gets rolling. I can't really give a prediction right now, but um, I think the Bengals are gonna pull this one off, guys. They're at home. I think they're going to correct some mistakes they made in week one. They did not look like the team they are. I mean, T. Higgins had eight targets, no catches. Really screwed me over in fantasy. Thank you, TJ. T. Higgins, if you're listening to this, screw you, man. I need you to catch some balls. All right, but I'm just kidding. T. Higgins, I'd love to have you on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Uh, Joe Mixon, I need you to pop off too. And uh, Joe Burrow, I always wish you luck. So we're going Bengals over Ravens. They're always competitive. Uh, next up, the Bears at the Buccaneers. Man, you know, I was high on the Bears. I thought the Bears were going to beat the Packers, and then they went out, and they, they, were, they were the exact same Bears they've been the last few seasons. Justin Fields is not the answer to your prayer, Chicago, and the Buccaneers are going to start the season off 2-0, and a team that was going to um, probably was projected to be one of the worst in the league. They were talking about getting Caleb Williams next season, a standout USC quarterback who's probably going number one next year. Uh, but yeah, I think the Bucks are going to pull it off. They're going to go up 2-0. And looking at um, a pick sheet I have with my family, even my uh, dad, who's a Bears fan, is going with the Buccaneers, if that doesn't tell you anything. I never bet against the uh, Vikings, and he's betting against the Bears. That should tell you something about the uh, Bears. But yeah, good for the Buccaneers, plus they beat the Vikings. I got I got a root for you guys. All right, you, you got one up on us. We'll get you back later in the playoffs. We will not see them in the playoffs, personally. Moving in to our next matchup, the 49ers will be taking on the Rams, which is going to be a much closer matchup than it was last season, I believe. 49ers currently the number one team in the league on all the power rankings. They were looking so good in week one, handed the Steelers a tough 30-7 to loss. 
Man, Debo looking amazing. Christian McCaffrey looking amazing. Kittle looking amazing. Purdy looking amazing. Ayuk was the best star on the team. It was an amazing performance from those fellas. And as for the Rams, man, I mean, Matthew Stafford working with uh, Nakua. He was working with Williams in the backfield. He was working with Higby. He was getting it done. Atwell was getting catches. The defense is looking good. This is a good Rams team, but I'm riding with the 49ers. I think they're the team to beat this year. Heading into our next game. Are we in the 325 games yet? We are with the Giants and the Cardinals. Cardinals just barely lost 20-16 to to the Commanders in a very awkward game. They did not do well. They don't have Kyler Murray. Team's kind of in shambles. But they're taking on a Giants team that just lost 40-0. to They're going to be in Arizona. Another upset pick I have this week, the Arizona Cardinals over the Giants. I think the Cardinals get it done. You got to be risky when you're making picks. Man, it should be a, I don't know, I want to say fun battle. I hope this game isn't on uh, the regular TV slate. But yeah, Giants got whooped 40-0. Suck it, Giants. We lost to the Cowboys 40-3 last year. And you beat us in the playoffs, so you know what? The NFL uh, God said, screw you. You're going to lose 40 to 0 to open week one. So, yeah, we'll go with the Cardinals as an upset pick. Next up, what do we got? The Jets at the Cowboys could be the game of the week. Cowboys currently, I think, has the best point differential. Has to to start out the season. The Jets coming off a huge upset win after losing Aaron Rodgers, who... I believe is out for the season. Terrible news for Jets fans, not for uh, Vikings fans. I'm sorry. I could care less. You're not You're not on my team. I apologize. But I'm going with the Cowboys in this one. I think any magic the Jets might have had from that opening game is not going to translate over. The Cowboys are also at home, and they just looked so good. The defense, I think, can run through this Jets offense. Plus, uh, Tony Pollard was an absolute maniac. I mean, my goodness, 22 fancy points. Someone control this boy. Next up, we got the Commanders at the Broncos. Gosh, I will not be watching this game. That's going to be boring. Sam Howell versus Russell Wilson. I'll go with Sam Howell. I got the Commanders in this one. No real reasoning. I just, the Broncos just aren't that good. They did. They look better than last year, but I don't think they're there. I think the Commanders pull off a little, uh, I don't even know if you want to call it an upset. I think they start out 2-0, surprising people. Heading into our Sunday night football game, as we have a doubleheader on Monday night, we have the Dolphins at the Patriots. This should be a very competitive battle. Patriots matched up very well against the Eagles, just about damn near beat them. But man, that Dolphins offense looks dirty this year. Tyreek putting up, uh, gosh, season numbers, if he can keep it up. Tua looked good. Even Raheem Mostert was doing some stuff in the backfield. Man, I like this Dolphins team. We're going with the Dolphins. But don't sleep on the Patriots. I think they're surprising some people. Mac Jones was looking good. Kendrick Bourne was looking good. Hunter Henry. I mean, uh, get Ezekiel Elliott some touches, though. Even though he's on my fantasy bench, you know, I like to see when he puts up some numbers. We're going with the Miami Dolphins. Heading into our Monday night doubleheader, games at 6.15 and 7.15. We're kicking it off with the Saints at the Panthers, a classic battle between these two teams. Always a good divisional matchup. You got um, Derek Carr. You got uh, Bryce Young. Uh, did either team, did the Saints win in week one? I, I, don't rem- I, don't, I can't recall if the Saints picked up a victory. They, I'm trying to check quickly. The Saints did win. They beat the Titans. Oh my gosh, I forgot they played the Titans. That doesn't count as a win. Beating the Titans does not count as an official win, but um, 
I think the Panthers, as as good as uh, Hunter Hurst was catching some prices, catching some passes from Bice, I think this Panthers team is going to take some time to work itself out. I'm going to go with the Saints. I think Chris Olave picks apart the backfield, and I think Jamal Williams does some fire things running the ball. Let's go with the New Orleans Saints over the Panthers. And we'll get into our final game of the day, the Cleveland Browns at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Always a good matchup when these two play. Browns coming off a huge upset to kick off the season. And, I mean, the offense for the Browns wasn't even phenomenal. I I don't even know how they beat the Bengals 24-3. to Just a great defensive performance. Um, and the Steelers got blown out by the 49ers. I'm going with the Cleveland Browns. Sorry, Seth, uh, my roommate who's a huge Pittsburgh Steelers fan, but I think the Browns, they pick up this one. I don't know if they're going to be the team this year in the AFC North, but I do think they beat the Steelers in this one. So those are my picks. We'll recap them. Vikings, Falcons, Colts, Lions, Chargers, Raiders, Chiefs, Bengals, Bucks, 49ers, Cardinals, Cowboys, Commanders, Dolphins, Saints, and the Cleveland Browns are my week two picks for the NFL I always love picking. It's it's so much fun, especially um, when you do it locally. I'm doing this one thing with two of my buddies now that we literally just set up before I started this podcast with doing like five bucks a week, $20 to end the season or something for weekly picks. And I've always done it with my parents. I'm incorporating my girlfriend this year. You know, she's an honorary uh, picks now uh, member of the family. So we'll see how she does this year. Uh, my dad is currently the reigning champ. He can pick the game so well. It's very, very impressive. Week two kicks off tonight with the Vikings and the Eagles. I'm actually going to, gosh, have to wrap up this podcast pretty soon to um, go over there. So hopefully that doesn't take too long, um, but we'll see because, you know, I don't limit myself in the podcast, except for our uh, special guest, Dane DuPaul episode, where we had limited time. But hey, that's how it rolls. All right, but um, yeah, that's all I got for NFL. I mean, we'll be back uh, next Tuesday or Monday, I believe, actually. Monday's when I'll record, and we'll recap all the matchups that currently happened. But um, oh, I, I don't think I was, I don't think I've recorded since that Bills and Jets game. That that was a crazy ending. The Jets returning the ball to end the game. I was going ballistic. That is one of those moments you remember where you were when they returned that. There's, I mean, it's not like historic in a sense, but. Still a good moment to look back and recall. But, um, yeah, it's all our NFL talk for today. That means it's time for our surprise topic of the episode. So last episode, I had mentioned how I had acquired a book from the library called More Unsolved Mysteries of American History from Jamestown to Jimmy Hoffa by Paul Aaron. And we talked about if it was really Christopher Columbus who discovered America or if it was a guy named St. Brendan, a very good piece. I encourage you to go listen to it. And we're diving straight, we're digging this straight out of the chapters. And we're just, every epi- every chapter I'm on, I'm going to talk about on the episode until I have to return the book. So for this episode, your surprise topic, your uh, next thing up for our mysteries of the U.S. is who was really to blame for the Boston Massacre? The Boston Massacre, a uh, notorious event in early American history. We're going to go over it right now. So get your uh, get your hot cocoa snuggle up to a fire. You got a Zach reading you a story. So get all settled in. Despite a foot of snow on the ground, groups of Bostonians wandered the streets of the town on the evening of March 5th, 1770. Some responding to a fire alarm carried buckets of water. Others carried clubs to defend themselves. 
or perhaps to threaten the lobsterbacks, the red-coated British troops who had been stationed in the town since 1768, two years prior. Near the Customs House on King Street, several wig makers' apprentices taunted Private Hugh White, the lone British sentry. Words soon escalated to snowballs and stones, as we all know, and White struck back with the butt of his gun. Captain Thomas Preston heard of White's predicament and rushed the scene with seven other British soldiers. By then, hundreds of Bostonians had gathered as well, some still holding their buckets of water, uh, but there was no fire. But uh, there wasn't any fire. I don't know why they had the water now that I'm thinking about it. That's just silly. Uh, a piece of ice actually knocked down Private Hugh Montgomery when he stood up. And when he got knocked down, he fired into the crowd. More shots followed, and three Boston natives were killed on the spot. Two others mortally wounded. Samuel Adams, of course, not the beer, not the beer guy. Samuel Adams called the deaths a bloody butcher. And Paul Revere, the legendary Paul Revere, quickly produced an engraving showing soldiers firing point blank at citizens. Propaganda still alive back in the 1700s. And it, um, yeah, other patriot leaders soon began to publish pamphlets, and a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston soon went to tens of thousands. And I mean, they had giant of, they had a huge parade for the funeral. It was crazy. Sam Adams made sure the image of the Boston massacre didn't fade from American history. He even set aside March 5th as a day of mourning. I'm actually looking at this picture right now of it, and it is quite honestly just like a, it's like they lined up all the Bostons and had a firing line at them. That's how it's portrayed. Uh, annual oriations recalled the massacre as the direct and inevitable result of British oppression. Dang straight. Uh, its victims, the first heroes of the revolution, were still to come. Until 1784, when the 4th of July took place, Americans actually celebrated their independence on March 5th, the day of the Boston Massacre. Uh, not surprisingly, the British had a different view of the day's events. Some London newspapers suggested that the Bostonians were after the king's coffers in the customs house. Others accused patriot leaders of planning the incident, perhaps even with the hope of turning its victims into martyrs. To loyalists, this was not the Boston Massacre, but the riot on King Street. This was more than the contest of names. It was, as historian Alfred Young wrote, in a slightly different context. As he was, he, uh, Alfred was discussing the loyalist tendency to call the Boston Tea Party the destruction of the tea. So he puts it as part of a larger contest for the public memory of the revolution. It's just how they phrase things. I mean, propaganda nowadays, they like to phrase things differently than how they went down. It's just been a thing throughout human history. With patriot leaders like uh, Samuel Adams and Paul Revere forming rebellion, Massachusetts royal governor Thomas Hutchinson moved decisively to calm the town. He ordered the British soldiers out of Boston, and he had Preston and the other soldiers arrested and charged with murder, as they should be. Preston's case came to court in November. The captain was uh, defended by Samuel Adams' cousin John, John Adams. And uh, 30 years later, John Adams recalled sitting in his office the day after the massacre. Wow, they even got a John Adams' testimony. He said, Mr. Forrest came in, who was a loyalist merchant, and um, this is from Adams' autobiography, by the way, with tears streaming from his eyes. He said, I, I have come to a, with a very solemn message from a very unfortunate man, Captain Preston, in prison. He wishes for counsel and can't get none. I have waited on Mr. Josiah Quincy, who says he will engage you if you give him your assistance. I had no hesitation in answering that counsel ought to be the very last thing that an accused person should lack in a free country, said Adams, somewhat pompously, but no doubt sincerely. 
Sam Adams was one of Massachusetts' leading attorneys. His uh, cross-examination undermined the credibility of the prosecution's key witnesses. Ooh, so he testified that uh, he had heard Preston had ordered the soldiers to fire. I've actually heard that before in history books. Adams argued the captain might have said fire by no means, even if some of the crowd heard only the first word. He also paraded to the stand a series of convincing defensive witnesses. People most effective was uh, Richard Palms. Uh, he was the most effective, a revolutionary merchant who had actually attacked Preston and was standing right next to him when the shooting began, yet conceded he had never heard the captain order the soldiers to fire. So lying under oath, an absolute criminal. The jury took only three hours to acquit Preston. Next came the trial of the rest of the soldiers, Quincy and Adams. They appeared for the defense. They uh, they had to, they did face a tricky problem, though. They had to establish that Preston never gave the order to fire. Uh, they had eliminated the soldiers' best defense, namely that they were just following orders. So those soldiers were screwed, basically. Uh, Quincy's solution was essentially to take the British view of the massacre. He called the stand a series of witnesses to testify about the hostility of the soldiers throughout Boston. The point being that the mob intentionally provoked the soldiers. This was too much for Adams, um, whether out of loyalty or to the Patriot cause or to even Boston's reputation. He threatened to quit the case if Quincy continued in that vein. Adams prevailed, and the remaining defense witnesses focused on the immediate danger of the soldiers rather than general hostile climate. Perhaps most effective was Dr. John Jeffries. Dr. John Jeffries was a friend of Samuel Adams who had treated Patrick Carr, one of the massacre's victims. Jeffries testified he had asked Carr as he lay dying whether he thought the soldiers acted in self-defense. According to Jeffries, Carr answered he heard many voices cry out to kill the soldiers. Whoa. Carr added movingly that he did not blame the man, whoever he was, that shot him. Oh. He was, he was a kind guy. He cared even about people shooting him. A true Christian, I do say. The jury acquitted six of the soldiers of murder and found the two other guilty, which ended up being Montgomery and Private Matthew Kilroy, who was actually uh, guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Kilroy and Montgomery were sentenced to having their thumbs branded. <laughs> what? A painful punishment, but one that avoided any jail time. They branded people. They branded people as a punishment. We should do that. We should just brand all our criminals nowadays. How about that? Sam Adams, uh, writing in the Boston Gazette, decried a miscarriage of justice and demanded revenge. For many patriots, though, the trials were more a propaganda victory, as I've been saying, than a legal defeat. If the massacre proved the evils of British power, the verdicts proved the power of American justice. Oh. They should, Sam Adams' friend uh, Samuel Cooper wrote to Benjamin uh, Franklin, they should wipe off the imputation of our being so violent and bloodthirsty a people as not to permit law and justice to take place on the side of unpopular men. So he was calling for just evenry all around. For many historians, too, the trials became another symbol of American rectitude. Certainly, this was the view enshrined in American textbooks for most of the nation's history. I remember that in my textbooks. Oh, but in the 1960s and 70s, amidst debate over whether anti-war protesters were peace lovers or rioters, both the massacre and the subsequent trials came under new scrutiny. Maybe this wasn't what I read in a textbook now that I'm thinking about it. In the late 1960s, Hiller Zobel, a lawyer and legal historian, studied the trial records and noted that the jury was packed with British sympathizers. Hmm, virtually guaranteeing the non-guilty verdicts. So according to Zobel, the case John Adams later described as one of the most gallant, generous, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life was actually fixed. Well, what do you know? Something in American history was rigged and fixed for people with power. 
That never happens. Why prosecutors didn't object to a pro-Tory, that was the, um, I believe the Tories were the American people, or was that the British? I can't recall. Jury remains a mystery. Some historians have pointed to a Tory bias on the part of at least one prosecutor. Others have maintained the prosecutors were patriots. Oh, okay. But like John Mams, eager to show the world how fair they were, still others have speculated that the prosecutors simply weren't paying close attention, perhaps because they were overconfident that no Boston jury would dare let the soldiers off. Another theory, theory, theory <laughs> is that Governor Hutchinson might have pardoned any soldier convicted of murder, and prosecutors feared a pardon would lead to more violence. An acquittal, though hardly likely to satisfy radical patriots, would at least appear to be the result of a fair and legal process. Whatever the reasons for the prosecution's lapses, the trial was clearly stacked in favor of the defense. Zobel was not satisfied just to debunk the traditional view of the trial. His 1970 book on the massacre argued that the colonists were as much to blame for the violence as the British. Ooh, a bit on each side. He portrayed Samuel Adams as a demagogic genius eager to take advantage of the mounting tension between the townspeople and the soldiers. That does, that does sound, seem to make more sense. Other revolutionists, such as historian John Shy, went even further. Shy resurrected the old loyalist claim that the massacre was a patriot conspiracy masturbated by Samuel Adams' fellow revolutionaries. Absolutely genius Sam Adams. Or am I not supposed to root for him? Shy found the timing of the massacre suspicious, coming as it did at the end of a parliamentary session. That meant he pointed out that Hutchinson could not count on a strong response from London, so would have no choice but to give in to the Patriots' demand that the soldiers leave Boston. And in fact, that is exactly what happened. Uh, Shy concludes, Circumstances suggest that there was as much purpose as spontaneity in the events leading up to the massacre. Oh, so something spontaneous didn't happen. It was Percival. Shy's evidence, just the same as Zobel's, is largely circumstantial and ultimately unconvincing. So it's not proven that yet. But what the revolutionists failed to take into account is that the Boston's mob were perfectly capable of acting on their own. I mean, they can do their own thing. Working-class Bostonians didn't need Sam Adams or Paul Revere to get them worked up about British soldiers in town. Laborers had more reasons than other colonists to represent the lobster, uh, to resent the lobster backs. Those were the British because they were red. Army regulations allowed the soldiers to work part-time at civilian jobs, and many took work and pay away from Boston workers. Well, there's your motive right there. Tensions between soldiers and workers had been on the rise since 1768, and that day of March 5th was by no means the first time that bands of workers had clashed with soldiers. As recently as March 2nd, a fight had broken out when some rope makers asked the passing soldier if he wanted work, and then suggested he clean their outhouse. Wow. Amid all the conflicting, conflicting reports of the massacre, one fact does stand out. None of the revolutionary leaders accused of planning a riot were on the scene until well after the five workers were shot. In fact, as Zobel himself noted, when the first of the prominent revolutionaries arrived on the scene, they immediately began negotiating with Hutchinson to remove the troops from Boston. Their goal was to avoid further bloodshed, not cause more. Patriot leaders were on the scene for the massive funeral march a few days later, and they did help organize it. But the fact that more than 10,000 Bostonians turned out, the town's population at the time was about 16,000, so put that in perspective, it seems an indication of the depth of local anger rather than radicals' organizational skills. 
The rev revolutionists deserve credit for showing the not guilty uh, verdicts to be more than the result of an American sense of fairness or of John Adams' legal genius. Uh, more fundamentally, the revolutionists put to rest the myth that the massacre was entirely the fault of the British. So thank you, Zobel, for proving that uh, this wasn't just all the British's fault, but I mean... They, uh, but the, sadly, Zobel and his uh, Zobel and um, what's his name, Shy, they were not able to uh, realize that the workers' anti-British fervor fever uh, had outpaced that of patriot leaders like Sam Adams. Not to mention his more conservative cousin, John Adams. The patriot leadership wanted the troops out of Boston, but they were not yet ready for an all-out revolution. That was still six years in the future with George Washington. So, I mean, in one sense, the traditional and revanished, oh, it's, it's been revisionist. I think that's what they're, it's not revolutionist. They've been, we weren't revolutionists yet. These were revanists. That's um, the people trying to disprove the theory that this, who really caused the theory. Wow, okay. Um, both of these, um, both sides saw the American Revolution as an essentially conservative moment aimed at protecting the traditional rights of Englishmen, rights threatened by George III and the London Parliament, the English Parliament. Most historians would agree that the revolution, when it did come, was led by prominent colonists like Adam's cousin or George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, two of my favorite people. We're actually Freemasons, fun fact. In the past 30 or so years, though, historians such as Alfred Young, Eric Foner, and Gordon Wood have highlighted some more radical elements of the revolution, turning into more of a preview of the one in France than a rerun of the notorious Magna Carta, if you know that from your history books. From this perspective, the five slain workers were not just martyrs in the traditional view, or puppets as the, um, the revolutionists would have them, but genuine revolutionaries who died. Of the five, the most threateningly revolutionary was Crispus Attucks, famous name, the first man who was actually killed on the scene during Preston's trial, one witness described Attucks waving a large cordwood stick at the head of a group of Huzang whistling sailors. Huzang, what a word. Another recalled Attucks grabbing two four-foot-long logs for a woodpile, handing him one, and telling him to get after him. Whoa. Perhaps most threatening of all, Attucks was an escaped slave, the son of an African father and a Native American mother. John Adams was quick to use this against him, calling him a stout mulatto fellow to whose mad behavior, in all probability, the dreadful carnage of that night is chiefly to be ascribed. Adams went on to describe the mob as a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes, and mulattoes, Irish teagues, and outlandish jack tars. I did not know John Adams was an outright racist, okay? I did not know that, John. I kind of like you less now. Most patriot leaders managed to suppress any racist, slur, racist slurs in the interest of revolutionary solidarity, or at least revolutionary propaganda. Attucks was buried alongside the other four victims in spite of laws prohibiting integrated burials. Well, that's good. R.I.P. Attucks. In the 1850s, Attucks' radicalism resurfaced. By then, he had become a symbol not of American freedom, but of African-American emancipation. To abolish, to abolishness, wow, I'm bad with words, clearly. He belonged in the company not of either Adams nor of, uh, but of Nat Turner, a black Bostonian leader who was lobbied for a monument. Oh my gosh, they made a monument of this person named Nat Turner to commemorate the massacre and Attucks. John Rock wrote, who was an African-American doctor, the John Brown of the Second Revolution is but the crispest Attucks of the First. Again, an Adams spoke out against Attucks. This time, it was Charles Francis Adams, Jr., the president of the Massachusetts Historical Society. 
Ekowini's great-grandfather, Adams, called the so-called massacre a righteous mob. Not to be confused with the peaceful, earnest, patriotic protests and resistance by our wise and resolute popular leaders. In 1888, after a 40-year campaign by block, by block, by black Bostonians, the monument was erected on the Boston Common. Attucks was immortalized as the first to die, the first to defy. What a way to go out. This was not by any means an endorsement of a radical revolution, either for 1770 or 1776 or even 1888. By the time the monument had went up, Boston had again reimagined Attucks as a symbol of American unity. At the dedication of this, Mayor Hugh O'Brien declared that all men are free and equal without regard to color, creed, or nationality, and that the memory of the martyrs whose blood was, whose blood was shed in the cause of liberty in 1770 will thus be preserved and honored for all time. The inscription in the upper right corner of the monument read, On that night, the foundation of American independence was laid. Those words were actually originally written by Attic's first and foremost detractor, John Adams. How about that? If you guys want to read any more about this, um, you can read Legal Papers of John Adams um, by uh, Hiller Zobel. You can read Toward Lexington, Toward, T-O-W-R-D, Lexington, by John Shy, The Boston Massacre by Hiller Zobel, A New Age Now Begins by Paige Smith, The Glorious Cause by Robert Middlecoff, Remembering the Crispus Attacks, Quarterly Journal of Speech by Stephen Brown, or The Shoemaker and the Tea Party by Alfred Young. Wow. I just, uh, from everything I'm taking away from that, it's just, it just all worked for a full circle. I feel like anything could have been the case for who actually started this. I, I definitely think that the British want, if you get these, these Boston people who are just sent there to watch over, they hate you. They're going to attack you. They're going to say mean things to you. They're going to call you names. Um, and you're going to want to shoot them. So I feel like this was um, just a big pile of mm, a big pile of matches waiting to be lit, we'll say. Just a ticking time bomb, if you will. I, don't, I can't really say who I think started the Boston Massacre, but, you know, R.I.P. Atticus. It's crazy John Adams hated him, yet was included in his final... Uh, Final uh, words on his monument. I find that interesting. But yeah, super interesting parts of American history, which is often forgot about. You know, not people, not a lot of people look back into history once um, you get out of school. So I'm happy to read some of these. We'll have a couple more coming at you. Hopefully getting more into the mobster times. I know there's some mob stories in here, maybe some presidential ones, some Vietnam, World War II ones. But yeah, we've uh, so far just talked about if St. Brendan discovered America and who really discovered who really discovered? Who really started the Boston Massacre? So let me let me know what you guys think about who really started the Boston Massacre. That's your surprise topic for the episode. We always got to bring something new to you. It's not always sports. I mean, we've talked about endangered animals, processed foods. I, who knows what else we'll talk about? I love it. And ah, uh, you know what else I love? Ending the podcast. That's right, guys. This was a good episode. I'll see you next time. Just kidding. You really thought it was going to end like that. Heck no. We have to make our UFC Noche picks. As I mentioned, my favorite part of every episode is I'm either predicting or reviewing the recent UFC event. And man, there's not even a UFC event on my birthday. So I got to treasure ones like these. Plus, it's the first fight night with a title on the line since July of 2020. Long overdue. Happy to see uh, Valentina Alexa Grasso taking the main event spot. 
Should be a good one. We have 11 fights coming at you. Should be super good. I'm going to take a quick intermission, and I'll be back with all my predictions for UFC Noche. Alrighty, let's get right into it. UFC Noche, I mean, what's this even? It's just called, I mean, UFC Fight Night Grosso versus Shevchenko 2. This is the rematch. Super good. We'll talk about that in a second. But we're going to go from the bottom of the prelims to the main card. Give my picks for everyone. Uh, every fight, I should say. And as we all know, if you're new around here, all prelim picks are unofficial. All main card picks are official and go down officially in the picks book. So, um, yeah, let's get into it with our first fight of the night. If um, you could guess if it was a woman's fight, you would be correct. We're entering the women's strawweight division as Josephine Knutson takes on Manic Man. And before I mention, actually... This fight, I should say that there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine canceled fights for this card. And Jasmine, I'm um, Josephine Knutson, actually stepped in on short notice to fight Yasmin Lucindo. The fight after this one, um, actually a couple ones down, Lupi Godinez, who's fighting Elise Reed. Um, Elise Reed actually stepped in on short notice to fight Yasmin Lucindo, and Yasmin Lucindo fell out. So a lot of re, re um, adjustments here. Anthony Hernandez was supposed to fight Chris Curtis. Chris Curtis pulled out, and Roman Kopilov stepped in. Anthony Hernandez pulled out. So now um, Roman Kopilov will be taking on Josh Fremd. Daniel Rodriguez was supposed to fight Santiago Ponzinibbio on this card. That fight fell through after uh, Rodriguez tested positive for a banned substance. Uh, Shafkat Rachmanov was supposed to fight Calvin Gaslam on this card before Calvin pulled out. So this card would have been very, very stacked, but unfortunately, uh, we lost a lot of fights. But here we are, Josephine Thunder Knutson taking on Marnik, man, Marnik, sod, Marnik the Sawed-Off Savage Manic. That is just too long of a nickname. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Marnik. I'm not to be rude, you can't have confusing nicknames. That's to roll off the tongue like Josephine Thunder Knutson, but... Who am I to say? So, um, Josephine, a perfect 6-0. Marnik, 6-1. Uh, 5'3 for Josephine. She's got 3 inches in height. And uh, Marnik's got 4 inches in reach. Oh, good for them. So, Marnik, man, taking this fight on short notice. Same as Josephine. Um, Marnik was on Season 6, Episode 8 of Dana White's Contender Series, where she got knocked out in Round 2 by Bruna Brazil. Um, she did pick up a win April 21st in a different promotion, but um, yeah, she's back on short notice. Take on Josephine Knutson, who actually won on Dana White's Contender Series Episode 3 of this season, Season 7, that is. So she last fought August 22nd. She's back. She picked up a good win, did not get a contract, but you know what? We're happy to have her. Um, just, I saw Josephine compete recently on Daniel's Contender Series. I know how good her Muay Thai is, her kickboxing. So I will go with Josephine Knutson by unanimous decision. A simple pick to start out the evening. I love it. Heading into the lightweight division, we have Alex the Executioner Reyes taking on Charlie the Cannibal Campbell. Wow, these nicknames are getting out of control. My goodness. Um, Charlie Campbell, 7-2, uh, uh, is currently on a two-fight winning streak since getting knocked out on the Contender Series last year, uh, uh, Season 6, Episode 2 uh, in 2022. I remember his fight against Chris Duncan. He was winning, then he lost. Uh, he just got knocked out out of nowhere. It was pretty 
It was pretty crazy, so I know how good Charlie is. His opponent, Alex Reyes, last fought in the UFC in 2017. He got knocked out by Mike Perry with a knee in a minute and 19 seconds. That is the, That was the last time he fought. And that was his last time in the UFC. Uh, since then, he's had canceled bouts against Nazareth Hawk Pasarad, who fought last weekend, Nathan Levy, Trevor Peak, who recently fought. I mean, this this guy's been trying to fight. He's finally found his way onto this card. But um, you know, I'm I'm torn on this one, guys. I'm really torn on this one because there's just not much to pick apart. For these guys, I mean, career-wise, Alex is 13-3, and three, Charlie 7-2, and two, more experienced to Reyes. Um, Charlie's got an inch in height. Uh, Alex has got an inch in reach. These two are very similar. But simply because of age, Alex is almost pushing 40. He uh, turns uh, 30, He turns 37, I believe, October 2nd or 34, I believe. 30, he's either 36 or 37. And Charlie Campbell, I mean, this kid's 28 years old. So I'm going to go with Charlie for this one. We'll see how it plays out, but I don't really expect anything. That's why it's on the prelims. Um, and we finally get our first Mexican fighter. That's the theme of UFC Noche. It's in Mexico's Independence Day. Tracy Cortez is not actually from um, the, um, what am I trying to say? She's not actually from Mexico, but she has a lot of Mexican heritage. So Tracy Cortez will be taking on Jasmine Jasu Davis in our third fight of the evening and the women's flyweight division. Tracy 10 and 1 on an impressive 10 fight win streak. She actually holds a win um, over Aaron Blanchfield. Aaron is currently ranked. Is she number two now in the women's flyweight division? Aaron is the number two ranked women's flyweight. She beat her in Invicta FC, uh, all-women's promotion, not related to the UFC. She last fought... When did Tracy last fight? She used to date Brian Ortega. Anyone knows that is number three, men's featherweight. She last fought May 7th, 2022. Uh, she's currently on a five-fight win streak in the UFC, 10 fights overall. Her opponent, Jasmine Jasu Davish, fought uh, twice this year, uh, picked up two wins. She's 3-1 and one in the UFC, coming off of Season 5 of the Contender Series, where she actually beat Julia Palastri, who we talked about earlier. And the podcast ties back together. Jasmine is Canadian, by the way. Um, some matchup-wise, I mean. 5'7 for Jasmine, 5'5 five five Tracy. You got 2 inches in height for Jasmine, and 3 inches in reach for Jasmine. But this is Mexican Independence Night. Tracy Cortez is on an incredible win streak. She's currently ranked number 14 in the women's... Uh, flyweight division. There's only three divisions. I don't know why I got confused. So we will go with Tracy Cortez by unanimous decision. That's right. We're going with them. Um, actually, I'm going to say Charlie Campbell going back to the last fight by knockout in round number one. And then, yeah, this fight, Tracy versus, ja versus Jasmine will be a uh, decision. That's why I think it's going down. But yes, not, not, not too exciting. But, you know, Tracy Cortez, uh, good looking for a UFC fighter in the uh, women's division. And um, yes, let's keep it rolling with another short notice matchup that got put together. This time in the flyweight division as Edgar Peru Chicali Charez will take on Daniel Miojo Lacerda. Edgar is Mexican. Uh, Daniel is Brazilian. Edgar, um, four KOs, six submissions to his name. Daniel, five KOs, six subs to his name. A hundred percent finish rates for both of these fighters. Edgar, ten and five. Daniel, eleven and five. D Edgar is five seven. Daniel, five six. Edgar, seventy one inch reach, seventy inch reach for Daniel. Sarah, I mean, these two can't get much more even. They're the exact same age of. 
wow, they are both 27. This is a immaculately even matchup. Edgar coming off of um, Dan West Contender Series in 2022, Season 6, Episode 3, he lost. He then took a short-nose fight against Tatsuro Taera earlier this year. He was an absolute killer. In July, he lost that fight but proved himself very well. As for Daniel Lacerda, he is 0-4 in the UFC. Debuted in 2021, got knocked out in round two, then got knee-barred in his next fight in round one, then got TKO'd in round one, then got knocked out in round two. Wow, Daniel Lacerda, you suck. I'm I'm going with Edgar Chavez by round one knockout. I mean, Daniel Lacerda hasn't won since 2021 or 2020, honestly. I mean... Wow, that's tough. That's tough, Daniel. We're going with Edgar Charez by round one. Actually, we'll go submission for Edgar. We're going to go round one submission for Edgar Charez. Okay. Moving into our fifth fight of the evening, our second to last prelim in the middleweight division as Roman Kopilov will take on Josh Fremd. No nicknames for these guys. Aw. Roman is 11 and 2. Josh is 11 and 4. Six foot four to six foot in favor of Josh Remd, 76 to 75 inch reach in favor of Josh. For Remd, Roman is older by three years. Josh on a two fight winning streak now. He joined the UFC in 2022, lost fights to Anthony Hernandez and Treshawn Gore, but he actually got a submission over Cedric Dumas earlier this year and last beat Jamie Pickett by decision August 12th. He's back against Roman. And man, Roman, he kicked off his UFC career in 2019, got submitted in round number three, then came back in 2021 and lost the decision. Wondering if he'd get cut possibly in 2022. He picked up a huge round three TKO of Alicio de Circo. Then this year, he has had two round two head kick knockouts, both absolutely amazing, both highlight worthy. He got performance bonus for the one in January over Puna Heli Soriano coming off a big one on uh, UFC 291 July 29th earlier this year. Roman is back and you know what? We're going to go with Roman Kopilov. Fire round three knockout. It seems like the fun pick. Plus, you know, I, I like Roman Kopilov man. Ten knockouts of his 11 wins. I mean, this guy is a menace. He is Russian. And as for Josh Fram, four KOs, four subs to his name from Pennsylvania. We're going with Roman by round three, TKO. Let's get into our featured prelim as we have Lupi Godinez, who is Mexican, taking on Elise Reed, another short-nosed matchup that came together. No nicknames for these ladies, sadly. Lupi is 10-3, and three. Elise is 7-3. and 5'3 to 5'2 in favor of Elise and 63-inch... 63-inch reach to 61-inch reach in favor of Elise Reed. Elise, oh man, she has um, just been win-loss, win-loss since she joined the UFC in 2021. Got uh, knocked out in her debut, then won a split decision. Then got knocked out in round three. Then won a unanimous decision. Then got submitted earlier this year, but then picked up a decision. So I think the signs are pointing towards Elise losing. Um, as for Lupi Godinez, she is five and uh, five and three in the UFC. Currently on a two-fight win streak, wins over Cynthia Calvillo and Emily Duarte. Lupi is just on the verge of the rankings, so close. Um, yes, impressive striking. Her only losses in the UFC are to Jessica Penn, Luiana Carolina, and Angela Hill. She's notorious for short notice fighting. I mean, I think she stepped in on a week's notice once, but that's all I got. Um, as for Elise Street, she actually holds a win over Jasmine Jesu Davish, who we mentioned earlier on the prelims. So I'm going with Loopy by unanimous decision. I mean, all signs are pointing. Actually, you know, I got to go Loopy by 
knockout. Round two TKO for Lupi Godinez since uh, Lisa's gone win-loss in all of her fights and um, is scheduled to get knocked out. So that's that's the pick, actually. We'll, uh, we'll see what uh, what actually comes to fruition out of that. But, yeah, that's your prelims. We'll recap them real quick. Josephine Knutson by decision. Charlie Campbell by round one knockout. Tracy Cortez by decision. Edgar Cherez by round one submission. Roman Kopilov by round three TKO. And Lupi Godinez by submission. But let's get into this killer main card. I am absolutely pumped. Five fights on the main card. Um, I believe it used to be... Um, Six. I think they changed it actually, but who? What do I know? What do I know? Kicking off the pro main card now. Wow, this is all official, guys. This is all official. We have Fernando Alvalente Padilla taking on Kyle the Monster Nelson. Wow, Kyle sounds like he drinks energy drinks, not just because his nickname is the Monster. So uh, Fernando is fifteen and four, five KOs and eight subs to his name. He is a Mexican fighter. He's on a three-fight winning streak. He won his debut earlier this year with a round one knockout of Julian e. Rosa in April. You love it. You love it. Kyle Nelson has now found himself on a one-fight winning streak, two-fight unbeaten streak. He uh, had a draw earlier this year, then picked up a win June tenth over a tough uh, opponent in Blake Builder. Kyle is from Canada. He has five KOs and four subs to his name out of his 14 career victories. Uh, Fernando's got two inches in height and a notable five inches in reach. He's also five years younger than Kyle at uh, 27 to a uh, 32-year age gap. Yeah, Kyle been in the UFC since 2018. Uh, he's not impressive. He's two and four with a draw. Uh, losses to Diego Ferreira, lost to Billy Corntillo, Jai Herbert, but I'm coming off a win, so good for him. Uh, Fernando, big knockout. I mean, nothing much more to say. We're going with Fernando by round one knockout. Fernando Padilla, he's going to have the crowd going crazy once Bruce Buffer ring gets the crowd going with, are you ready? And um, yeah, we're we're riding with uh we're riding with the Mexican fighters tonight. We're feeling el noche tonight. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means, actually. I should I should look that up. What does noche mean in Spanish? Noche means... I thought that was a number. It means night. Oh, like fight night. UFC night. Oh, I see what you did, UFC. Their marketing team. Slick. All right, let's move on. Fernando Padillo, round one knockout. Next up, a lightweight matchup between Daniel Golden Boy Zellhuber and Christios the Spartan. Giagos. Ooh, Wow. Daniel Zaluber, another Mexican fighter, 13-1, and one, takes on Christos Giagos, fighting out of California at 20-10. and 10. Ooh. Daniel has seven KOs and two subs to his name. Christios, eight KOs, four subs of his victories. Daniel's got three inches in height, 6'1 to 5'10, and a notable six inches in reach, 77 inches to 71. He also is much younger. Daniel Zaluber, 24 years of age. Age, Christos Giagos, 33. Christos been in the UFC a hot minute since 2014. Uh, not the most impressive run. He is 6-6. Uh, six and six. Wow, so 500, oddly, I guess. Uh, losses to Gilbert Burns, Chris Wade, who's notable in the PFL, Charles Oliveira, Drakkar Close, Armin Zucri, and Tiago Moises. And he's picked up, uh, he's, he's coming off a round one knockout of Ricky Glenn earlier this year. Got a performance bonus for it. So good for him. But Daniel Zaluber, 
Uh, 1-1 one one in the UFC, only loss and career losses to Trey Ogden by unanimous decision back in September of 2022. He won in the Contender Series against Lucas Almeida. That guy's tough. And earlier this year, he dominated Lando Venata in a unanimous decision victory in April. I'm going with Daniel Zaluber. We'll spice it up. I mean, the guy's got uh, seven KOs to his name. Christios has been knocked out. And he's been finished pretty... He's been finished in round one, I think, three times in the UFC. Uh, so we'll go by round one knockout just to keep the momentum going. But I'm really confident Daniel can get this done. But who knows? Maybe um, maybe Christios will play spoiler. He's coming off a big win, so we will see. This next one, guys, I'm very excited about. I I enjoy this fighter. He's controversial. He is the youngest fighter in UFC history. Raul Rosas Jr. Raul El Nino Problema Rosas Jr. takes on Terrence Mitchell. And nothing to say about Terrence. Raul, a Mexican fighter, of course. Um, I don't actually believe that he was born in Mexico, but he is as Mexican as it gets. His whole family's Mexican, but I believe he was born in like New Mexico or maybe Arizona, something like that. Raul seven and one, five subs and a KO to his name. Terrence Mitchell is actually from Alaska at a record of fourteen and three. He has six KOs and eight subs, giving him a hundred percent finish rate. And Terrence was actually on the Ultimate Fighter season twenty-four. They actually got KO'd by Kai Kara France in 30 seconds. That's pretty crazy. But this fight is at bantamweight. Um, Terrence has got an inch in height, 5'10 to 5'9, and a crazy 7 inches in reach, 74 to 67. Wow. Paul Raul Rosas Jr.'s birthday is October 8th, 2004. A fellow October birthday, and yes, you heard that correctly, he is 18 years old currently. Terrence is 33. That is a huge age cap. Terrence... Had his UFC debut earlier this year against Cameron Samen. Showed some good grappling, but Cameron TKO'd him in round number one. Take TKO'd him in three seconds. Th- thir- three minutes, sorry, not three seconds. That'd be a record. Raul suffered his first career loss in his last fight against Christian Rodriguez. Pretty much gassed out. Showed only a grappling attack. Um, he had a good round one, four minutes of control time. Then completely fell apart and got dominated. But before that, he'd won in the Contender Series, and he won his UFC debut against Jay Perrin by a neck crank. So he won. He's the gosh. That I don't know who's ever gonna beat that record. An 18-year-old got a round one submission in two minutes and 44 seconds in the UFC. It's just a just a crazy, crazy world we live in. And if you think I'm picking Terrence, you'd be wrong. I'm, I got to ride with Raul, man. I mean, he's close to my age. He's a young kid. I'm going round one submission. Terrence got finished in round one before. That's what I think's going down. We're riding with you, Raul. It's Mexican Heritage Night. We gotta. And in honor of Mexican Heritage Night, we decided to do an Australian versus an American in the co-main event. No, I'm just kidding. It was it was supposed to be uh, Calvin Gaslam, who might have some Spanish heritage. I don't really know necessarily, but who who knows? We got ourselves a good one in the welterweight division. Number 13-ranked Kevin Holland takes on number 14-ranked Jack Della Maddalena. Oh, my goodness. This is my favorite fight of the night, ladies and gentlemen. This could be the main event if it wasn't a title fight in the main event spot currently. I mean, I love Kevin Holland. Kevin, the trailblazer Holland, takes on Jack Della Maddalena, JDM. Kevin is 25-9 and nine with 13 KOs and 8 subs to his name. That's crazy. He's finished 21 of his 25 victories. As for Jack Della Maddalena, 15-2. He's on a 15-fight win streak, 11 knockouts, 2 subs. Finished 13 of 15 fights. Oh, man, such a good one. 
Um, six foot three to five foot eleven, four inches in height for Kevin, and a notable eight inches in reach for Kevin Holland. He's got a couple in height, but I mean that eight inches in reach. Kevin fights orthodox. Jack is more of a switch stance. Kevin, thirty um thirty one years old right now, I believe. As for Jack Della Maddalena, I believe he is twenty seven. So yeah, just four years younger, but it is what it is. Jack came into the UFC in 2021 after beating Ange Lusa on the Contender Series, who we saw fight, I think, two weeks ago. Since then, he's picked up five straight victories in the UFC. Round one knockout of Pete Rodriguez. Round one knockout of Ramazin Imev. Round one knockout of Danny Roberts. Round one submission of Randy Brown. And a fight of the night against Basel Javiz back in July. A performance bonus in three of those and a fight of the night in his last time out. He has already made 200 grand in post-fight bonuses in his young UFC career. Man, his last fight out was a tough one. He lost the opening rounds. I mean, he's getting out grappled, but he found his way, fought his way back. Love to see it. I like Jack Della Maddalena. Man, I really do. But he ain't no trailblazer, man. Kevin Holland is one of my favorite fighters. I can't get over this guy. We're going to go through his whole UFC career. Kevin Holland, uh, well, we'll say he is on a little two-fight win streak, two-fight finish streak, I should say, but let's take it back to the beginning, where he wins on the Contender Series but doesn't get a contract. He then steps in two months later on short notice to fight Tiago Santos up in weight and is so entertaining. He then gets signed to the UFC, goes on a three-fight winning streak before getting submitted by Brendan Allen, which that loss has aged very well. Continuing his ways in middleweight and welterweight, he would go on a five-fight winning streak for those finishes. Um, I mean, 5-0 in 2020, he was my fighter of the year. Sorry, Hamzat. But uh, then he got uh, towards the big boys, Lost, uh, got out grappled by Derek Brunson and Marvin Vittori in a fight night main events, losing both of them. Then had a no contest against Kyle Dawkins. But then 2022 comes around, beats Alex Oliveira. This was his move to welterweight. Beats Tim Means, gets performance bonuses in both of those, and fights Hamzat Shemaev on, like, under a day's notice. Obviously, he gets destroyed in two minutes, but just such a badass. Then gets a fight night uh, three months later at against Wonderboy Thompson. Breaks his freaking hand, still puts on a fight of the night. This year, though, he's gone 2-0. He's knocked out Santiago Ponzinibbio in round three. Got a performance bonus when he submitted Michael Chiesa at UFC 291. Not but, um, gosh, not even two months ago. I mean, crazy stuff from Kevin. Um, I'm going with Kevin Holland by round two submission just for the upset, just for the fans. I love you, Kevin, man. And I just, he's just so entertaining. He's such a good fighter. Kevin Holland, I want you on the podcast. If I can have one person on the podcast, give me Kevin Holland. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, it's that time. It's a sad time, but it's a fun time. As we reach the main event, which means the end of um, our UFC event, but that's just how it goes. Let me just tell y'all something. This fight is between the number one pound-for-pound woman in the rankings, Alexa Grasso, and the number three pound-for-pound woman, Valentina Shevchenko. Alexa is your current woman's flyweight champion, Valentina, the number one contender. The rematch between Alexa Grasso and Valentina Bullet Shevchenko. Alexa is 16-3 and three with four KOs and two subs. Valentina, 23-4. and four. She is from Kyrgyzstan, 8 KOs, 7 subs. She suffered her first loss this year against Alexa Grasso, her first loss since 2017. But man, Alexa Grasso's got the home field advantage. She is a Mexican fighter. She's so entertaining. We love her. Both 5'5", both 66-inch reach. 
you can't write this. They're so equal. I mean, Alexa's five years younger. Valentina's pushing 40 almost. But Alexa in her prime. We'll start with Valentina. Man, she's been in the UFC since 2015. Her only two losses in the UFC before Alexa Grasso were both against Amanda Nunes, both close fights. Shields wins over. We'll go through it. Holly Holmes, Julia Pena, Joanna Joan Jacek, Jessica I, Liz Karamuch, Caitlin Chukagan, Jennifer Maya, Jessica Josh, Lauren Murphy, Talia Santos, Ivide, Valentina is a beast. She's back. She, um, in her last two fights, she has shown some issues in the grappling department. But, uh, yeah, Alexa Grasso. We'll see what she has to offer. Alexa currently on a five-fight win streak. Been in the UFC since 2016. Started our career 3-3 three and three before stringing together this five-fight winning streak. And, I mean, her losses are to Felice Herrig, Tatiana Suarez, and Carla Sparza. Two of those absolutely amazing fighters. Carla, former champion. Tatiana on the verge of a title shot. This is going to be a very good one. I mean, on this win streak, she's outboxed Jiyoung Kim, outboxed Macy Barber, Submitted Joanne Wood in round number one. Absolutely destroyed Viviana Rujo on the feet through five rounds. And when she got her shot, not, a lot, not many people gave her gave her a chance, but she beat Valentina Shevchenko. And guess what? It might have been by upset round number four. But it's Mexican heritage night. I've quite honestly picked every Mexican fighter on this card, and it ain't stopping here. Alexa Grasso by decision. Lock it in. Check my verdict. It's official. Verdict MMA, follow me, ZR2002. Lexa Grasso by decision. I think she edges Valentina out. You know, I I saw Adesanya beat Pereira, but I also saw Usman not be able to beat Leon Edwards. So we'll see what happens. These rematches always go 50-50. Who knows? But we're grinding with Alexa Grasso, ladies and gentlemen. I love it. So we'll recap my picks real quick. We got Fernando Padilla by round one knockout. Daniel Zaluber by round one knockout. Raul Rosso-Struger by round one submission. Kevin Allen by round two submission. And Alexa Grasso by decision. What are the odds all those come true? I doubt it, but you know what? I'm riding with all those fighters, man. I love it. I love it, man. UFC is so entertaining. Such a fun, such a fun thing to watch, personally. it's It just it gets you going watching people fight. And this should be a good one. I like these themed events. UFC Noche. I think we should do some European cards. Maybe a J- I'd want to go to like Japan, but there's only like one Japanese fighter on the card right now. China. I don't know if the UFC can go there because of how controversial it is. Controversial it is. Same with Russia. But uh, we could do another Canadian theme card or something like that. Those are always fun. But yes, that's all I got, folks. That's all I got. This I like. This was a nice chill one. Nice chill one. We did the surprise topic, of course. Talked a bit about NFL week two predictions. Of course, my UFC Noche predictions. Recap the Contender series. All sorts of stuff we always chat about. I I always find it fun. Working on getting some guests in next week. Working on getting some new episodes out all the time to you. I've I've been wondering if I can turn this into just a one episode thing every week, but I just don't know how I can recap an event and then give my predictions for an event both in the same week. So we'll see what happens, but I do kind of like this two episodes a week format. So yeah, thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you go, um, everything goes well for you guys. And we're going to end every episode for football season with this. Go Vikings. That's right. We are riding with the Minnesota Vikings tonight. As you know, big Vikings fan. Go Vikes. All right. God bless everyone. Have a good day.